Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. My name is John Gordon. I'm a uh, Senior Communications Specialist here at Ducks Unlimited National Headquarters. And one of my jobs, and really my favorite job, is I'm the production coordinator for Ducks Unlimited Television. And if you'd have told me that I was going to be the production coordinator for DUTV back uh, when I first started watching the show in 1997, I would have thought uh, you were crazy. Because it just, I've always been such a fan of the show, and it's been a big part of my life. And for me to be able to be the guy behind the curtain, so to speak, now is really like a dream come true. And... The 2022 season that's coming up, uh, first new episodes airing in July, is actually the 25th anniversary of DUTV. So we're doing this special podcast series commemorating the 25 years. And and you have to put it in perspective that there's no other waterfowl-based show and very few outdoor-based shows that have been around that long. I mean, you really, this show started back when there were no dedicated outdoor channels. We started out on the Nashville Network. And it's just been a big part of Ducks Unlimited ever since. So to commemorate that, we're going to do a special series of podcasts involving former hosts and people who have been involved with the show at all different levels. And so in this particular episode, we've got two of my favorite hosts on the show and two guys that really uh, kind of set the bar, I think, for for what you really need to be as a host of DUTV, and uh, Jared Brown and Mark Pierce. So, guys, welcome to the DU Podcast. It's uh, great to have you. Thank you, John. It's uh, it's scary that we're talking about 25 years past now. <laughs> Guess I have a lot more gray hair than when I started. No, you got you got a lot, a lot, a lot more gray hair. It was black when we were doing the show, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I, I've gone back and watched a lot of of the early episodes, you know, really, you know, to prepare for the podcast, you know, to really see what it was, what y'all were doing back in in 1999, 2000, and all that. Yeah, and he's right about that, uh, Jared. You're you're a little more (laughs) gray today than you were then, that's for sure. And like I say, at least I have it. (laughs) That's right. I've lost a lot of mine. I I got this hat on, so you can't remember. It's my DU podcast hat right there. But uh, anyway, so... What I really wanted to talk to you all about is, is okay, for one thing, what a lot of folks don't know, what I didn't really know, is that you two are really, you know, bonded, close friends, and have been friends for a long time. And you really came through, through Ducks Unlimited, am I correct? Yeah. That is correct. Absolutely. I think it was uh, we, about one beer in at a DU board meeting, and, and we realized we were brothers from different mothers, you know, that kind of thing. And have been, you know, closest brothers ever since. So, yeah, it was all Ducks Unlimited and uh, Matt Conley, who was, they called the position the executive director at the time. I remember him calling and telling me, he said, hey, there's a new guy on the board. You are going to love this guy. Like, you guys are are going to hit it off. And I think he told Jared the same thing. And he was 100% accurate. Um, yeah, it's been a special friendship. Yeah, that's without a question, uh, John. That's one of the blessings, many blessings that uh, by becoming involved with DU and, you know, the wonderful works, it's also the opportunities that I've had to meet some wonderful folks throughout the country that have the same passion, but no more or greater than the man sitting on the other side of this screen, and that's Mark Piss. Uh, as Mark mentioned, a half a beer in, we were blood brothers, and we're like, <laughs> oh, my God. We, we just didn't know it. We, we're from the same genes. We're just uh, little different parents. <laughs> I understand. I understand. That's a, that's a popular saying that I've always heard, that people come to DU for the mission, and they stay for the people. And with the two of you, that that could be, you know, that saying is no more true than, than, than just looking at the long history you've had together. And so let's go back in time a little bit. Um, I was checking out, watching the old shows, Mark, uh, you, you must have filmed your first season in 1999, which aired in 2000. How did you come about being a host of the show at that point? And so uh, give the listeners a little insight into the process. 
Yeah, I can't I can't believe it was that long ago. First of all, you know how that goes. But um, so I was on the board. I was on DU's board at that time, and it was a really big and important part of my life, having served as a local volunteer and worked through the volunteer system, and then having the great honor to be elected on the board as regional vice president, then senior, and then what they call an advisory senior vice president. And the leadership at DU at that time, as it has been since then, was just stellar. And it was um, something, it was just a fantastic experience. And part of that, to your question, is that we were in a committee meeting, I believe it was the marketing committee at one point, and um, Matt Connolly, who I referenced earlier, and others said, you know, hey, we've we've done this TV show for a year. You know, we we DU, as you mentioned, was ahead of the pack in creating a, a lifestyle-themed television show that projected the values of duck hunters and, of course, Ducks Unlimited. And after the first season, which had been hosted by an actor, um, and he was a he was a great guy and he was very talented. But what we were talking about is they'd gotten a lot of feedback that the audience was saying, hey, we, we like this guy, but it's pretty obvious he's not really a duck hunter. <laughs> you know, he doesn't blow his duck call. He doesn't have a dog. He doesn't, you know, he misses a lot and all the rest. And uh, they, they were like, you know, we think we need a new host. You know, maybe we should just get some regular Joe who's just really passionate about DU. And someone looked across the table and said, Mark, why don't you do it? You know, you talk a lot. <laughs> and you're, uh, I was a guest on the season, the first, or on one episode, the first season, and it turned out okay, I guess. So I said, wow, you know, that might be, that might be kind of fun, but I don't know if I can be gone 13 weeks, you know, out of the fall, if my wife's going to quite permit that, which is what at the time was 13 episodes and each was, you know, more or less a week. So there was another fella who wasn't on the board. I think he was on the Watt board at the time named Oren Richard, a great, another great guy from Louisiana. So Oren and I split those duties. We did some together, and then we, we separated for some for a few years. And then Oren, Oren's business was very demanding, and he uh, determined that he could no longer participate, and that's when Jared uh, jumped in. And then Jared and I did for a number of years together. But yeah, it was all, like you said, it was on the Nashville network. There was maybe only, I don't know, four or five hunting shows, period, at that time, if you can imagine, because there's you know, like hundreds of them now. And, uh, you know, it was off to the races and uh, just became a, a, a real big part of my life for a number of years. Yeah, it, it uh, mine too. And like you said, there really was no program. There was some. I remember there were some. There were some early videos and some DVDs out, but there was no television show that was dedicated to duck hunting. And that's what I did. You know, that's what I lived for. You know, I mean, I started hunting when I ducks when I was ten years old. And at that point, you know, it it, it really was something that it really intrigued me that there was a show about waterfowl hunting. And actually, you know, the, the first episodes, if you go back to the first couple of seasons, not every show was about waterfowling. And I and they've told right. me that that was blowback, not blowback, but like, the Nashville Network didn't want a show that was totally just about duck hunting. They wanted more variety in the show, so they did turkeys and elk and different yep. things like that. So it didn't really become a dedicated duck hunting show until you started hosting with Oren, and then uh, Jared came on and Wade Bourne and some of the other yep. guys, and so that's when it really became a waterfowl only show at that point. But, that's uh, right. Yeah, it was it was originally called the World of Ducks Unlimited. That that's and right. The idea was that the world of Ducks Unlimited surpassed just duck hunting. You know that duck hunters are also turkey hunters or deer hunters and all the rest. They mixed some of that in, and then in later years it was determined, hey man, Ducks Unlimited is still at its core, mostly supported by duck hunters. There's other hunting shows out there where people can watch deer and turkeys. You know, let's let's duck hunt. And I think it's been that way since then. You know. It has been. Yeah, it we has did. Been. Um, we did do a few cast and blast type of shows in Alaska with the Copper River Delta, where we'd fish for salmon in the morning, the silvers, I believe it was, and uh, then duck hunting afternoon, waiting for the tides, and a couple other shows had the the cast, you know, that combination. Yeah. And uh, again, trying to reach out to an audience that even a lot of hunters, as Mark said, are fishermen, and and vice versa. 
and and that's still something that's really important to DU today. You know, is the diversity, uh, clean water, what we do for wetlands, for uh, flood mitigation, things like that. So it's really, you know, ways on the mind of everybody around here that that yeah, sure. I mean, we we really are wetlands conservationist, but you know, that wetlands conservation flows over into everybody's life, you know, in all communities from all over North America. So it's, uh, you know, those those early shows really kind of showed that. And But, you know, we've done a little, you know, extra stuff. We had, you know, some pheasant hunting last year on one of the shows. And, and uh, I've got some ideas about, you know, maybe branching out into more of that in the future. Um, and watching a lot of those old shows have given me some ideas along those lines that maybe we should go back and, and revisit, um, you know, showing more of where we touch people's lives besides just waterfowling. Well, one of the things, you know, we've always said through the years, and I'm now come back on the board, is it's wetlands and associated habitat. Right. And those associated habitats are upland games and even big game, those type of things. It all works together. And when we're talking about conservation, it's habitat. We're trying to preserve, protect, and restore these landscapes and it's not just wetlands yeah amen exactly uh do you guys remember on the world ducks unlimited what the tagline was when they uh, opened the show more habitat on the ground means more waterfowl in the sky something like that (laughs) well that was actually wade saying Uh, you know he he came up with that and uh that was what he used a lot on the show in the beginning though it was a spirited outdoor adventure and a commitment to conservation is oh, what they yeah. said, you know. Welcome yeah. to the world of Ducks Unlimited, right? So it, uh, and then you know, actually, the name changed to DUTV in 2002. That's when it became Ducks Unlimited Television, and yep. the first episode of uh, of a guy uh, from Louisiana who was uh, uh, hosted uh, you and Oren on a teal hunt at Cajun Outback was was uh, the first appearance of Jared Brown on DUTV, and. That's right. um, then, then you became a full-time host in 2003, Jared. So tell us about that. I mean, how were you approached about joining the show? Well, one of the things I have to comment on that teal hunt in and at the Cajun Outback, that was right after 9-11. And we were actually delayed a few days because the president and the whole world just shut down the airlines and... I will tell you that flight that I finally did board to go to to, to Houston, Texas, it was very nerve-wracking. And I had a big gentleman on the plane that got on the plane, and he basically just sat rocking the whole time going, nobody's going to the front, to the bathroom. You're going in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm right behind you, big guy. I tell you what, I'm all for it. But, uh, you know, the opportunity to host Mark and, and Orn at Cajun Outback it was a wonderful time, but uh, that was one of the most, you know, nerve-wracking experiences was get on that plane right after that 9-11 couple mm. days later. I forgot but, about that. Uh, yeah. Without a question, uh, again, Mark, I know, had a lot of influence on me co-hosting alongside of him. Without a question, um, I love duck hunting. I love all waterfowling, and I'm very passionate about wetlands and conservation, and I love to hunt. Every day, every hunt, I feel like a young kid. It's like my first hunt, and I think I was able to uh, certainly project that on the screen when um, when I was hosting, co-hosting with Mark, as well as, you know, sometimes individually hosting, and Tried to share that passion and that love for the outdoors, the traditions of waterfowling, along with the great works that we're doing with, you know, Ducks Unlimited in all these, well, throughout North America. So it was very enjoyable. It was a one of the most fun times, one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. Well, that's great. And no one could ever say you were you were cheated on your enthusiasm, Jared. Uh, I'd say from watching the old episodes, you uh, you do love it, man. It comes through, and it's 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 very evident, you know, that you really and he hadn't are into changed. It. He hadn't changed at all. Like and, and that's like great. He said, and that's he wakes great. up. If it's if we're duck hunting, every morning is Christmas morning for Jared. He's ready to go, man. Yeah, Mark always puts the new guest at Cajun Outback with me. 
because you're going to have to show them how to hunt a Cajun out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I don't blame you for that, Mark. I'd put him there with Jared too, man. He, uh, he, if anything, they're going to be entertained, whether they kill anything or not, for sure. That's a fact. But uh, anyway, we were talking about Wade Bourne earlier, and I know y'all worked real closely with Wade too, because he really kind of took over the what we call the wraps part of it, you know, the intros and, and exits of the show, Mark. when Over from you, you, you did that for a while yourself. Wade came yep. on, and Wade was such an outdoor, oh man, outdoor statesman. He was he was incredible. And so, what was it like to work with Wade and and really get a up close and personal uh, a look at at him and and what he brought to the show? Yeah, he was like you said. He was he was like the consummate pro and gentleman. And it was it was he was different than Jared and I because Jared and I were <laughs> we were kind of hacks, right? We didn't know. We weren't writers. We weren't. Uh, we had no experience doing anything like this. We were just, you know, love du, love duck hunting. So let's let's go for it. You know, Wade had a, a real extensive background in outdoor journalism. You know, he was an excellent writer, photographer, the whole thing. So um, he was a really good ying, kind of Jared Knight's yang, you know. And um, we just loved him. And and Jared and I joke when the when the show got busy and we all had our personal lives to run and we needed to offload a little bit more. Wade came in to help, did the raps. He also, to his credit, he was kind of the head of the curve on this. He was a big proponent and advocate of public land hunting. You know, he just was always for stories and opportunities for the common guy that was hunting on, on public land. And so when we plan these hunts out, this is a little bit of how the sausage is made, and you certainly know now, John, is that if you're going to, if it's just going to be amazing duck hunting, you know, lots of ducks on camera, it's probably on private, somebody's private land somewhere, you know, because um, the ducks are, they're less wary, there's more of them, et cetera. Now, we always mixed in a lot of public land hunts, of course, because that's a big part of our tradition in America. But, you know, you just lower your expectation. The birds are going to be tougher. You're not going to shoot as much. You might have some guy hunting over here next to you, you know, whatever. And Wade was so passionate and committed to that public land hunter. He said, look, guys, I'll take all the public land hunts. You guys can take the fancy duck, duck club shoots. And we were like, okay. <laughs> because we'd, we'd done a lot of those in years you know, prior to Wade joining. And sometimes it was a grind. You know, you'd go out public land somewhere and... Kansas and, you know, shoot three gadwalls in three days. Um, but it was still important to show that that part of uh, hunting. But, yeah, Wade, can't say enough good about him. Gentleman, big heart, passion for DU and for our great traditions that were just, just off the chart. Yeah, I'd like to echo those same sentiments. Uh, you know, Wade, every time I was around him, you just felt good. And... Um, He's very eloquent, like you, Mark said, with his background, being a professional writer. And we had a longstanding joke and would kid one another. Mark and I were the junkies when we bring our little snacks in the blind. I mean, Pop-Tarts. I still eat Pop-Tarts today. and But Wade was like, you got to be kidding. He had Spam. And I was like, oh, no, yeah. we're not eating Spam. Spam and potted but, meat uh, and to, Vienna to sausages. That, yeah. 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 To bring that point that Mark was talking about with the public land, case in point is like one of the shows I did was the Harkon Marsh, the Fable area up there in Wisconsin. And I can remember getting with the volunteers, big old Jack Nugent, and it was three in the morning, raining, sleeting. He's with his shirt off. I'm freezing my butt off <laughs> coming from the south. And we're preparing to go out to the blind to make sure we get a spot before the other hunters get there. And on top of that, you have to hire, hide two cameramen, a sound guy, plus me with, you know, some of the guests. It was just a nightmare to try to hunt public land with birds that have been sky busted and overshot, you know, things of that sort. But we did get shows off. We were in a, an area that could showcase a lot of the, the DU projects that were up there and the work that we're doing. So at the end of the day, they weren't a total bust. You just didn't have as many, you know, uh, rewarding kill shots on the on that show. 
Yeah, and I, I've tried to integrate, you know, public land still as much as possible. You know, we we kick off the show this year with some public land to early season teal hunting uh, in Nebraska. That'll be episode one with some university students up there. So we try to still try to do it, but you're right, the challenges are there. And uh, ducks, let's just face it, 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 there's not anything harder to film as far as a hunting setting, though, than waterfowl. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it, people don't really realize they just see their end product and they don't realize what in the world went on to try to catch those birds in that perfect spot i mean where you know there's you could have ducks all over you geese too and they're not in the right position for the cameras i mean you know it can go on and on about about how difficult it really is to film uh it, it's really it's tough yeah john you know uh, i've told jared the story before of um i think it was in the very first season of that, that I was involved in, and Oren was part of it, there was a uh, grand opening at a Bass Pro Shops in Nashville, I believe it was. And we were to appear there because, you know, we were quote-unquote TV hosts. And I saw Kurt Gowdy there. And, you know, American sportsman. I mean, yeah. that was that's really what spawned all of these shows now. He was the godfather of outdoor TV. He was in a wheelchair, and I just couldn't wait to meet this guy. And I watched him all growing up. And I told him I was helping out with the DU show. And he said, man, he goes, God bless you. He goes, duck hunting shows are the hardest thing there is to film because, you know, what's the number one rule of duck hunting? Don't move. What do you have to do with cameras? If you're going to get anything, you got to move, you know, <laughs> and you got extra people. And back then, too, it's worth noting when Jared and I were doing this, that the cameras were huge. I mean, they were, I don't know, you know, like two cinder blocks side by side. Now there's a lot small the technology of course has changed a ton and you can get the same quality out of a probably darn near out of your iphone but certainly smaller cameras but back then you had these giant cameras the guys wanted to be on sticks if they could as they call it or tripods and so hiding our whole get up there was was a challenge <laughs> and then you throw that on public land you know it's going to be tough sledding yeah. Yeah, there, there were a few places talking about Mark said two cinder blocks. It was probably almost three, and it weighed that much. And now we <laughs> remember we had, we had tromped through those the uh the the wilderness, if you would, in Alaska to go to a back pond with decoys, everything. In fact, we had to take the cameraman's cameras for a minute. They were like dying <laughs> trying to walk through that bog and everything. It was like, oh my gosh, today it'd been so much easier. But this big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can get some really high-quality stuff just off a of DSLR setup. Yep. And that's what, you know, most of the, you know, the guys, especially in the blind and everything, that's what they have. But you can still, you can catch some pretty good bird footage off of them as well. So it's really changed mm -hmm. the dynamic of yeah. having to hide people as well. You know, you said with that really, really big equipment, it's, it's really easier now. But it's still a challenge. It's just, you know, duck hunting on camera is always going to be tough. And if you want to guarantee that birds don't want to come in, put a camera out there. And it's, uh, they just yeah. really, they, they just go the other way. So it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. I, I tell you, one of the, uh, the other things about the camera, and it was very frustrating for me, and I finally had to learn this, but truly for the first five to 10 minutes of the hunt, the camera was not able to pick up the birds. There just wasn't enough lighting. And in many places, that's about two-thirds your limit. You know, <laughs> there were times there'd be birds in the decoys like, can you see, can you see, can you see us now? No, just wait. It's too like, dark. Oh, Can't see. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the that, number one rule is don't shoot, you know, don't shoot a bird unless the camera's got it because then it's in a waste for the show, right? Yeah. And so you had to train yourself and you'd be, yeah, we'd be like little, you know, like our dogs would be, you know, come on, let us go. <laughs> nope, not enough light yet. You got to wait. Like, oh, you're killing us here. It, it's still that way to an extent. All those cameras today, are, they pick up light faster, so you don't have to wait as long. But you're right, like yeah. early teal and things like that, you could be over with in 10 minutes. You know, by the time the mm. cameras are ready, it's you, you could have nothing. So that's it, right. it's, once again, that's just another aspect of how difficult it is to get this stuff on film. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Um, I want to talk for a second about a couple of shows that are, that are my favorites and uh, get your opinion on some of y'all's favorite memories from the show. Uh, there was a particular episode down, let's see, it was in 2005, episode nine. 
And y'all were in Mexico. It was the three of you. It was Mark, Oren, and uh, Jared mm. all together in Mexico. And uh, I thought this was so hilarious because uh, there were so many spoonbills coming in. And, I know it's coming. And Oren and, and, and and, and pulled up and shot one. And that's when the floodgates opened for Oren and Jared. It was on at that point. And Mark, you were just over there going, shaking your head, and you weren't doing it. So tell us about that episode. I'll let Jared tell that story, see if it's true. <laughs> I, I can remember it like it was yesterday, John, and it was, first of all, as you said, Orrin started shooting spoonies. I mean, I looked and I was like, you're a Cajun. What are you doing shooting spoonies, you know? <laughs> and uh, he goes, I'm tired of them coming in the decoys, and there's nothing else. It's time for them to go down. I was like, he goes, come on, JB. I'll have a cigar for you back at the lodge. You start shooting. I said, I'm in, baby. Next flock comes in. Hell, I took my spoonies too. (laughs) (laughs) And we could not entice Mark with all kind of leverage. Cold beers, cigars. Nope. And I'll never forget that line at the end of that show. Mark ends the show with, I've been spoony free since 73. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. I saw him shoot some this uh, year. I was, afra- <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say that. It's true. Well, I have it on video. If That's we need true. any video. Yep. His dog it picking was, up a spoonie. It was slow this year. One day, Jared and I were out, and I've got this new dog, and I was just dying for him to make some more retrieves. So I said, you know, it's time to, time to break my spoony abstinence so i'm back in the club but yeah i was holding strong in mexico it made for a very entertaining episode let's put it that way it, it wouldn't <laughs> have been near as good if it had been all pintails or something right coming in it was uh it was great that uh that, that they were giving you uh, all kind of grief for the spoons mark it was it, mm. it was a fun show uh another one i like that that's really kind of near and dear to me because I, i've been a snow goose hunter for oh, man since i was a little kid grew up around the houston texas area you know, back in the heydays when that was where they were. And, you know, y'all y'all know that area well, too. Um, there was a particular episode, and I want to say it was during the early conservation season days, somewhere in there. And I want to say it may have been in that same area where y'all filmed that teal hunt down there. There was a pit blind in the ground, and a guy had put out some, some uh, like, 10 or 15 stuffers. I'd never seen anything like it before. And, you know, we were used to putting out 1,000 decoys at a time. And all this, and it was just like, I think y'all were pretty skeptical as well about are these geese going to come in here? And y'all had some huge flocks decoy into the that little spread. So tell us about that a little bit and how that all came together. Uh, Jared, you better take that one too. That is, I'll just spoil alert, but that is actually Jared's property down in Texas, which uh, he and I spend a lot of time at now down on the Gulf Coast. And so he's got 30 years of history with that place and that old guide. So, yeah, tell him about that, Jerry, because that, that was amazing what he used to do with those stuffers. And he called with his mouth. Yeah. the uh, John, our former, basically, manager of the place, grew up there in that area called Cove, Texas. And he was incredible with a diaphragm call. He literally just could talk to snow geese, just like he was a wild goose himself, and bring a flock from 500 yards up. I mean, these these birds were high, and they liked this portion of Cajun Outback. It was a kind of a sandbar area, which you will in our marsh. And uh, the birds would feed in the fields, the soybean fields, the rice fields back in those days, and then fly over and come back to our marsh to just lounge around during the day and roost as well. But um, we had for a number of years some outstanding goose shoots. And as you said, that particular show, I think, you know, we were hoping that it would be a steady flow of flocks coming in. We maybe had a couple of small flocks come in, but then the mother load came in and it had to be close to a thousand birds or more on us at one time. And, I mean, they just started with that. And our blinds were pit blinds, but we had screens above us. And so we put a little grass and stuff. I mean, literally, we're looking up, and they're flying five feet above us, just going to be landing out in front. And the noise, if you can imagine, a thousand snow geese 
it was deafening. And uh, when Mark and I called the shot, it was out there right in front. They were just coming in. It was like, take them. Yeah. And, I mean, it erupted. It was amazing. <laughs> well, and you love John. Like, you know, it's uh, you're obviously an accomplished snow goose hunter because you, you noticed that this uh, methodology that this guy had, his name was Steve. But his theory was that if you put out a ton of decoys, you got to sound like a ton of decoys, right? And there's more chance that the geese, snow geese are so dang smart that they're going to notice that there's no, there's no movement in those decoys. But if you put out, and this was kind of pre or maybe early electronic call, but his thing was you put out stuffers so you get a little bit of, you know, the wind blows down there a lot, so the feathers are kind of puffing. You're getting at least a little bit of movement. And then um, he called with that diaphragm call, and he said, now you only have to sound like five geese. He had a thing. He would only hunt odd numbers. <laughs> He'd either hunt with three, five, or nine, or 11, you know? And some usually it was, you know, in that five to 10 range. And then you'd get a whole flock coming, and he's just like with his diaphragm, just sounding like a few birds. But he was so good with it that that, I think that group would, they almost had less fear of that small decoy, small realistic decoy spread. And that's not the first time that Jared and I saw him put a thousand geese over five decoys or 10 decoys, you know? It's amazing. No, it was it was spectacular. And to this day, he probably was the most effective snow goose caller I've ever seen. Me too. Yeah. And I mean, he, he really had their language. He'd listen and the conversing with Mimic. the snow geese was yeah. spectacular. And there were times during the hunt where we have several blinds in the area. Once we saw that flock start working and just stop dead in their tracks, start spinning. It was like, okay, shut all the blinds down. We're going to let Steve do his thing. And those three or four hunters with Steve are going to have a lot of fun. Magic. Yeah, it was incredible. Well, that that makes a lot of sense, really, coming from a snow goose hunting standpoint, because a tactic that I've used a lot for ducks as well is, is show them something they're not seeing all the time. They're seeing that thousand, you know, windsock spread all over the prairie back in those days, they weren't seeing, you know, 10, 11, 12 birds in, in a small flock, uh, you know, alone in the marsh. They, they just in never the saw that. So they exactly. couldn't believe, right, they couldn't believe that that was not real. Right. So I can see why that would work. But anyway, it's one of my favorite episodes y'all ever did together because it's, uh, it, it's cool. Uh, and that was, it was extra fun because it was, you know, right there on the place that, that we hunt to this day. I think there's another interesting um, kind of note in all of that that I was just telling someone the other day. You know, when I started with the show, being from Montana, and we primarily shoot mallards here, and and honestly, the mallards are fresh off the prairie, so it's kind of like hunting in Canada. They're not; they haven't been shot a lot. They haven't seen a lot of the tricks. And it wasn't until I started hosting the show and traveling all over with Orn and then Jared that I realized that people in the South, oh boy, this will make somebody mad, maybe, but they're they're actually better hunters because they have to be, right? It's like the snow goose thing that, you know, you, you're thinking of new tricks and whatever because these ducks have been all the way down the flyway, or geese in this case. And I just found there was a lot of people in the South that were incredibly good callers, good decoy strategists, you know, good all the rest. Whereas those of us this close to Canada, you know, we throw a handful of mallard decoys out and call halfway decent, we're fine, you know. So that was an interesting uh, lesson for me as I traveled around. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a show we did, Mark and I, after a board meeting. We were in Saskatoon and uh, went out to Quill Lakes, of which Quill Lakes, even today and back then, it is a big staging area for snow geese coming off of the Arctic, coming off the Boreal Forest in that area. And we were told we're going to be shooting snow geese in white plastic lawn chairs. And I'm thinking, what do you mean a white plastic lawn? And okay, the legs were sawed off. So it was only about this high, but we're in the middle of the field. We have cameras to hide. It's Mark and I alongside the DU of president at that time was John Tompke and Peter Carton, uh, Carton, uh, DU Canada. President of DU Canada. Yep. And we get out there the first afternoon. It's windy, starts setting up. 
Mark looks up, and I mean, literally, oh, I thought he was going to catch the snow goose coming in the decoys. They wanted in so bad. They were so hungry. And, uh, you know, once again, we're sitting in white chairs above the ground, just wide open, but, you know, with thousands of snow goose and rags, and uh, what a spectacular Birds are coming right sight. in. The kamikaze little Roskies. I mean, just kamikaze yeah. and in. The snows weren't quite as crazy, but those that was little Ross geese was mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, too, Jared, a funny part of that was at that time, Jared and I were probably, you know, like 40-ish, and the, the two DU presidents were probably 20 years older than us. And we sh- the limit was big. I forget what it was. It was, you know, the conservation-type uh, limits. And we shot a bunch of birds. I mean, we had a pretty good pile and then John and Peter, both great guys and gentlemen, they said, "You know, we our shoulders are getting a little sore. You know, we might we we might have enough." And Jared Jared and I quickly counted. We only had half our limit, and we're like, uh, "No, <laughs> if you guys want to, <laughs> you guys lay down and hold still. We're going to keep hunting." <laughs> and we Bruce did. Bat says we have a problem with the populations. We need we're to take gonna more help out, out of that air. And so gosh, we're going to do we our job. limit. Yeah, that was fun, man. <laughs> it's it's a conservation show. You know, you had to do your job, That's right? right. I mean, do your part. You really to to help the snows. But uh, another really unique episode, Mark, and this was to you because you Jared wasn't there. There was a episode you did in Montana with a falcon. And yeah. how did that come about? And I, I've just I've never seen it before since that somebody was they were trying you were hunting birds. At, I believe pheasants as well. Uh, yep. You know, trying to catch them with a falcon. So how, how did that come about? Uh, I think there was a – so I have a, a farm here in Montana. We film, you know, different shows here off and on during those times and still hunt a lot. Jared comes up several times a year. So there's a lot of mallards here, primarily mallards in the later season. And I've had some falconers come and ask me before if they could they could hunt. And the first time that happened, I said, man, yeah, you can go, but – I need you got to take me with you. Like I got to see this. I've always been fascinated by raptors and birds of prey. So we go out, and this guy he comes back a few days later. He gets his female peregrine falcon, and he puts it up, takes the hood off, puts it up in the air. And I pointed and I said that big bend on the creek right there. Said there would be a bunch of ducks, you know, right there. And uh, but we of course stayed back so we didn't flush him. So the, the falcon went up in the air and then it started flying these little tight circles over that corner and he's watching it. He says, okay, you know, she's got him. He said, now we need to run up to the creek and we need to yell and holler and clap our hands to get the ducks to fly. And I kind of looked at him like, dude, you don't know anything about ducks. Like when they see us, they're going to go, you know? So I kind of mentioned that to him and he goes, oh no, not now because they see her. I'm like what? So we run up to the creek and... True to his prediction, if you can imagine this as a duck hunter, all the mallards swam over to the shore and hid in the grass instead of going up in the air, except for one. And the hen mallard, and that falcon dropped. And when the falcon hit that duck, it sounded like somebody hitting two two two-by-fours together or something, you know? I'll never forget that. The duck tumbled out of the sky. And so next day I was on the phone to Memphis and said, guys, we got to film a falcon killing a duck. And so we set it all up and then the camera operator showed up and they're like, you know, you know, what are we doing? A lot of the camera guys back then weren't really hunters. So we had to kind of, Jared and I would explain to them. And I said, well, this falcon, you know, they're like, wait a minute, doesn't falcon go like 200 miles an hour? And I said, yeah, something like that. And they're like, and we're supposed to film that? <laughs> yeah. So, but they did. We had to do a bunch of them, but they got enough bits and pieces to make it work. And man, if you ever get a chance to witness that, it's, imp- I mean, that is a incredible bird that, you know, a duck is bigger than a falcon. And yet they just absolutely smack them out of the air. So cool. Mark and I get to witness that even at Cajun Outback. We have a couple of falcons that hang out, and when the airboats start running down, boy, next thing you know, this thing's just dive-bombing right over our they heads. They love the teal. Yeah, love oh, yeah. smacking those teal down there. I, I can imagine. that's It's a small bird for them, so they, uh, you know, they, they it's a little easier target. But uh, yeah. I've seen, I've, I've hunted at Real Foot Lake several times, and, and there's bald eagles hanging out all over the place up there. 
And uh, people will tell me, uh, you cripple a duck or something like that, and they'll come snatch them, you know, right off the water. And yeah. uh, it's uh, those oh, birds yeah. of prey are incredible. So it, uh, that's, that's an idea. You know, uh, like I said, watching a lot of these old shows have given me a lot of ideas about things we might all revisit, and that might be something that would be really cool yeah, if we can it, make it happen. Yeah, film it out here, John. Yeah. We can, we can set you up. Yeah, I want to look into that, Mark. That, that, uh, I think people would love it to, uh, to see that again. Uh, I'm trying to— We've kind of got a little gap on, on our shows on on online. And so also, too, if anybody out there in the audience, you, you can see most of these shows we've been talking about all on, at ducks.org. We've got them all there uh, on our uh, classic episodes uh, on the website. But there's kind of a gap so uh, of shows we don't have. So I, when did y'all stop hosting uh, DUTV? What, at what point was that? You remember, Jared? Well, you know, I think I retired off the show saying, hey, Getting a little gray, give someone else a wonderful opportunity. I believe that was like in two thousand nine, maybe ten. Yeah, the latest. That's what I'm thinking. Is I might I think I did something in 08 a little bit, but like two thousand seven may have been the last year that I was really involved. And one of the the last shows we wasn't one of the very last shows we did, Jared. That sea duck hunt in Connecticut in uh, Rhode Island. I think it was one of the last. Shows that you and I did that yeah. uh, was very special. And I'll let Mark mm-hmm. talk about that. You know, what we encountered out there, you know, we know we're going to a certain destination. We know we're going to be doing certain type of hunting. But it doesn't always unfold, you know, as expected, like we've been talking about. And I think what was so unique about this show, and I'll let Mark touch on that, was what we did encounter. Because yeah. uh, it it resonates constantly in our mind. We we revisit that experience and laugh about it constantly. Yeah, yeah. It kind of it kind of starts with the the note that when people ask Jared or I, like you guys did these hunts. I think I did like seventy or seventy some hunts, maybe eighty something over all those years. And like you know, with that all that experience, what was the best hunt you did, or what's your favorite? Of course, it's impossible to pick because, you know, every hunt has its uniqueness. If it's in, you know, central California shooting pintails or down in a great property in, in Louisiana, uh, you know, in the, in the swamp, um, the, I mean, every, every part of the country has, has its uniqueness. And there's so much learning in that. And for us, like we talked about at the beginning, it was so great just because everywhere we went, we were met by and hung around really wonderful people that were super passionate DU volunteers and those friendships and, and all the rest were is as memorable as the hunts. But anyway, in this particular one, and it, and it, I guess what I was, where I was going there is that I always tell people, if you're a big duck hunter, do a sea duck hunt sometime. Got to do that because it's just so interesting. It's so different and the fact that these species live out there in those conditions and how they're hunted. So in this case, we were to hunt with some volunteers down in Rhode Island that were eider hunters, common eiders, late in the season. And we went with them, and man, it was fun. It was fantastic. They were the Tapero brothers and Jim Tapero, who's still a wonderful DU volunteer. And we shot eiders. I think that was, Jared, your first eiders. And I got abandoned one, I remember. I still got the pictures, man. It was a blast big rocks and we were in boats, but, you know, waves splashing in. Then we go meet some new, some other volunteers up in Connecticut and they had um, some sea duck hunting and also some Atlantic brant hunting lined up because neither of us had ever shot Atlantic brant. So the brant was first up and we go out and we're in like some fancy pants com- coastal community in Connecticut where there's multi-million dollar houses and we're in, we're in the dark, and all of a sudden, Jared and I realized we're right next to these houses, you know. And we said, "Is this is this okay?" And and they're like, "Well, they don't like it, the people that live here, but it's legal, you know. It's just the way it is." Like, okay, you know, when in Rome. So we set up, and all of a sudden, the big, the biggest, baddest house that we're next to, the guy turns his stereo as loud as it'll go. Bruce Springsteen is playing on the porch and he's trying to drive us out of there basically. And these guys are like, ah, don't worry about it. It's just, it's the kind of stuff we encounter all the time. Jared and I are looking at each other, man. 
And they had told us over and over, like, whatever you do, you can only shoot one Atlantic brand, so be careful. Because if you shoot into the flock, you're going to kill more than one, we're going to have a problem. So we got that plan in our heads. Then this thing happens. So a wonderful volunteer, Scott Spry, he finally goes to talk to this guy and face him. We're like, I don't know if it's a good idea. You might get shot. And it turns out the guy had some history with DU. Scott calmed him down. He turned the stereo down and joined Ducks Unlimited <laughs> by the end of the hunt. <laughs> we never shot any Brant. They never showed up. Um, but that was quite an experience. And then later that day and the next day, we shot old squaws in a, in a skull boat. We shot, uh, I think we shot some scoters or something. I mean, it was just hanging out with these guys guy named uh, Hank Garvey, um, who's who's from that area, Massachusetts, and he was he was down helping us with this hunt. I think we both shot our first old squaws. Tell them about the old oh, squaw yeah. hunting, Jared. That was so cool. I know. That's that's the uh, and again, back in that time there were old squaws. Today it's the long tail. Oh, the long tailed duck. duck, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, the long tailed duck. We gotta be correct here. But uh the Interesting thing about this long-tailed duck was it was extremely fast. I mean, it literally flew right, just right above the deck of the waves. And uh, But the most interesting thing was, as Mark touched on, we did a sculling boat. And I had never experienced laying in one of those. And uh, so this, this Hank Garvey had this sculling boat. And what the deal was, you'd see this flock rafted out here in the bay. And then as soon as they dove, they basically just simultaneously all pretty much dove at the same time, you'd skull as quick as you could, and you could cover a lot of ground. I mean, he literally could go about 50 yards in a matter of about three seconds, four seconds. And when we got over the spot, he'd bang on the side of the boat, and these long-tailed ducks would literally come up out of the water like missiles. And, I mean, you're shooting this bird brazen up. It was the most incredible scenery of— It was. Wow. When yeah. was the last time you really shot a bird just rocketing up versus, you know, coming into the decoys? It was like and, shooting uh, a rooster pheasant, you know, coming out yeah. of the grass, <laughs> except as this long-tailed duck, this little missile coming out from underneath the water. They didn't pause on the surface. They just popped out and were flying. It was incredible. Yeah, I've seen video of them. It looks they fly underwater. Is what it looks like. You know, they so they really were flying before they hit the surface, and they just came out. It's incredible. Ducks fascinate me. You know, from there could we deal with all kinds of different species in North America, but there's all kinds in South America and Europe and, and all over. So ducks are a part of, of really everybody's life you know, around the world. And they're just really fascinating because they just there's so many different kinds and they act differently and and there's so many and ducks don't live in ugly places that's another good favorite saying of mine so every time you go duck hunting or goose hunting somewhere it it it's a place that you know you can really you know get into and enjoy and it's 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 a lot of fun so you know I think uh, and I think over the last 25 years we've really done a good job of of bringing the TUTV audience to these places and really and in, in, in these and introducing them to these people as well. And, uh, and I say, you guys have really been an integral part of that story. And, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. You know, it's like I said, I, I watched, you know, as a fan for years, you know, now that I'm a part of the show, it's, uh, it, it's really, really great to talk to y'all. And, and once again, thanks so much for all you've done for DU period, not just DUTV because you both have been, really strong volunteers and have really helped, you know, our mission along the way and, and just can't thank you enough. Uh, it's been joy. Well, thank you, John. I mean, again, we feel equally blessed. The opportunity to serve on this great organization, conservation organization, Ducks Unlimited. Again, the works that they're doing, it's all backed by science. We have volunteers. We have staffs. And the fact is, the work that we're doing today is going to put more wildlife, waterfowl in the sky and impact the wetlands and associated habitat for generations to enjoy these same great hunting, you know, adventures that Mark and I are doing today. Yeah, it's, I think that there was a some kind of survey done of membership back when I was 
involved at that level of the organization that, you know, asked people the number one thing that motivated their commitment to DU, and it was to leave a legacy for future generations. You know, that this, these experiences that Jared and I have been so blessed to have and our friends and family that I think people like you, John, and all the staff there, and certainly all the tens of thousands of volunteers around the country, want to make want to ensure that future generations are able to have these same experiences, and that's really what it's about. Is um, you know we want to make make double sure that our grandkids, our great grandkids, and beyond have that see those snow geese in the sky the the way that we did, see the old squaw popping out, whatever it is, because they're just beyond description and they're extraordinary in our in our world. Yeah, bottom line is good habitat is key to waterfowl populations and success. It's really great to be a part of an organization like Ducks Unlimited. I get to come here and work at, at DU headquarters every day, which is really a shrine to waterfowl. I mean, it's really an incredible experience. I mean, I, you, you have, it's hard to wrap your head around it if you're a waterfowl hunter or not. It's, it's really an incredible place and an incredible mission. And we can't thank you guys enough for being a part of it. And I tell you what, what the audience wants to know and what I want to know is, you know, when are we going to see a Jared Brown, Mark Pierce episode on DUTV again? Uh, I want to work hard to put that together. Hey, bring it. Twist my arm <laughs> uh, if you have to go duck hunting, okay? Uh. Yeah, I know. It'd be hard. <laughs> you know, re- Wait, reliving hey, all these. Is tomorrow too soon? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we can go to South America, I guess, but we, we're, we don't do anything in South America, so we can't there. go there. So uh, we got to wait a minute, but uh, I think everybody would love to see y'all back uh, on the show for an episode, and I think we'll we'll work on making that happen. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, reliving all these old stories just gets the juices flowing again, how much fun it was telling these stories to the DU audience. So let's do it. All right. All right. I'm going to keep y'all to that. We're going to make it happen. But uh, anyway, thanks again, guys. I mean, this has really been a pleasure uh, for me, and uh, thanks again for all you've done for DU. Thank you, John. You're producer Chris. We appreciate you guys and what you do and spreading the DU gospel. Happy that we could participate. Thank you, John. Enjoyed it. And thanks for everybody listening to the DU podcast. Once again, if you want to see old episodes of the show, go to DuckShot.org. Go to the media tab at the top. Pull it down. DU TV is right there. And you can go down a a rabbit hole of, of old episodes and watch the thing for hours. So anyway, folks, thanks for listening to the Ducks Unlimited podcast and supporting Ducks Unlimited, North America's leader in wetlands conservation. And as the late great Wade Bourne used to say, more habitat on the ground means more ducks in the sky. I'm John Gordon, and thanks for listening to the DU Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Ducks.